The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica Richmond, and it is time to talk about extreme periods. Welcome to Flow. It's November, and we want to know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow, Christy. How's it flowing? It's it's okay. Um, I'm not menstruating. But I had a conversation that was pretty interesting with a friend yesterday. She's like, I'm feeling so down, you know, like she's like, I'm crying. I don't even know why. I don't know what's going on. And then we started talking and she's like, am I getting my period? Mm. And we just had an interesting conversation about how like a few days before we get our periods, we typically feel that same way, like heaviness, maybe a little moody hormones, you know, and how even after like 20 years of bleeding, mm. t- over 20 years for me, I still don't recognize it. I don't put like the PMS with the, you know, oh, oh I'm yeah. getting my, like, I don't think about it when I'm in the moment of feeling like down. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I'm pretty hyper- vigilant of mine currently in my life and so I'm like four days away here we go I don't even need to play is it mood swings or is the world just mad because like that's the game I yeah, normally play is this mood swings or yes. is the world just so nuts that I'm feeling things you know it's interesting because like we said the same thing we're like we're really aware we both track our cycles but yet it still doesn't register for us mm. I just think that's interesting you're really in tune I, I just wonder how other people feel. I mean, totally. No, I hear I hear it all the time talking to menstruators as well. The like surprise arrival, even after some warning yeah. signs. But truly, I play the game. Is it mood swings yeah. or the world? <laughs> <laughs> and I check with how. Or both. Or both. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. The, the world is, I don't know what's going on in the world right now. <laughs> on that note, how are you? How's your flow? Yeah, no, I'm PMSing. So... I am aware my partner here is male, knows I'm extra emotional around this time. But I I do have to constantly remind myself, and I like to remind him, like, that is what's happening. That's what's happening right now. Yep. A little tender. Yeah. And that's okay. It is okay. Because as we've been learning on this whole year, like, it's it's more than okay to be having the symptoms of your period. In fact, it's so common, the missing link, a lot of it has just been talking about it. But that's why we're here. That's why we're here. In our, can you believe it? It's our 11th episode. Yes. So next month marks the end of season one of Flow. We've had monthly episodes, so cliche of us. <laughs> and we've been on this journey of discussion about our personal trials and triumphs of managing menstruation. We've heard from incredible doctors, patients, and advocates about the multiple ways managing menstruation can be extreme. Extreme. And next month, we'll conclude season one of Flow tackling menopause, the closing of reproductive years, 
which can definitely be extreme, which probably deserves its own podcast as its own transformational <laughs> physiological experience. I'm sure there's one out there, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. As we get ready to talk about the close of reproductive years, we're also going to express so much gratitude to be flowing with you, Christy, because December's episode marks your last episode on Flow as co-host. I know. It's a bittersweet moment this has been so much fun i've learned so so much um and i won't be going far away you know i'm gonna show up oh good oh yeah we're gonna don't you worry listeners or jay rich i will be around yeah we're gonna hear can't get rid of me then we need christy's tips to come back we need to discuss how you're not crazy together also just so you know i will still be texting you every month to ask about your period yeah will be happening i hope so i'll that it's gonna be such a void in my life i mean Hopefully, I maybe I can get my my partner to ask me or my oh. friends like just oh check no in, I'm ask me how my flow <laughs> will be TMI texting you all the time that's fine all that's the time I'm... we're so grateful I'm so grateful that we've had season one and that Christy I've gotten to be in your orbit and learn so much from you such a wealth of knowledge as we get into episode eleven I know you have some knowledge to share about VWD. I do. We we talk a lot about VWD in this episode, and I just wanted to start it off with a definition of what it is so that our listeners feel in the know while they're listening. So VWD stands for von Willebrand's disease, which is a blood disorder in which blood does not clot properly. And although it occurs among men and women equally, Women are more likely to notice symptoms because of heavy abnormal bleeding during menstruation or during or after childbirth. If you want to learn more about VWD, we talk about it at length during episode three, what is disordered, and also in episode five, the patient experience. So I just wanted to start with that little bit of a reminder so that when we, you know, use the acronym throughout this episode, everybody feels like they know what we're talking about. Absolutely. Get more information and go back and listen to episode five. So wonderful. And episode three, which also includes some words from Sarah Jestrab. She was previously on Flow. She's back on Flow today for this month's episode with incredible conversationalists, Dr. Wyand, also known as the Shematologist, and Jean, aka Dr. Grow. This panel, these conversationalists are going to dive into sexism. Let's talk about sexism, baby. Let's get to it right after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. Hi, I'm Nicole. It's time to normalize talking about our health needs. Download your discussion guide at VonVendi, that's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I, dot com slash VonVendi dash support. Welcome to Flow. We have an incredible guest panel today. Originally initiated a conversation around sexism and bleeding disorders. We are thrilled to continue that conversation here on Flow. We're going to welcome Dr. Whalen, Dr. Grow, and Sarah. Christy is going to lead us in with some hard-hitting questions. We'll see where the conversation flows from there. And we'll identify some voices as we do intros. So just you'll start with your name as you speak this first round. Yes. Thank you. So I am going to have each of you introduce yourselves and who you are, what you do, where do you live, 
just a short introduction because we'll we'll get to know you better. Um, and I know that you all met on the National Hemophilia Foundation's Bleeding Disorders Conference this past August when you were speaking on this very topic. So let's, again, start with some introductions. So I'm Dr. Angela Wyand. So I'm a pediatric hematologist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I'm really interested in, you know, the care of women and girls with bleeding clotting disorders. And I actually initially met Dr. Groh as we were both members of the VWD guideline, the management guidelines. So got to know her there and then actually had recommended her as um, one of our panelists for this recent National Hemophilia Foundation talk. That's great. So I'm excited. To be Thank here. you so much for being with us. We, we are fangirls of the Shematologist on Twitter. Everyone go now <laughs> and follow her. Sarah, <laughs> do you want to introduce yourself? And Sarah has been a guest on the podcast before, so let's just uh, call that out. But welcome back, Sarah. Yes, thank you. So I am Sarah and recurring guest here. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in rural Montana, uh, where my path to a bleeding disorder diagnosis was not as linear as some would have you think. Um, so I struggled to get an accurate diagnosis for over a decade now. Um, and then between my upbringing, education and professional experience, uh, I really fell in love with public health practice. So I currently work with the Montana Office of Rural Health, uh, which complements that passion for improving access to uh, quality healthcare in those rural and frontier populations. Um, so I'm a lover of the outdoors and food. So you'll, in my free time, you'll finally find me out in public lands or else in the kitchen cooking. So Aww. a little about me. Love mm -hmm. it. Thank you. And again, thanks for coming back. And last but not least, Dr. Grow, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's really great to be here. And I'm perfectly happy to be Jean. So. Okay. <laughs> so we have Jean, the Shematologist, and Sarah. I like <laughs> superhero names. Perfect. Okay, so a little bit about me. Um, I am a mutation. Actually, I am not a mutation. I have a spon spontaneous music mutation of BWD. And mm. I come from a giant family of seven children, and I'm the only one in my sibling group with Von Willow Browns. Um, both of my children, I have a mom too, both of my children have VWD. So I am a, I guess I'm a she-bear when it comes to self-advocacy around health stuff. I'm also a mad baker. I love to bake. <laughs> and in my professional life, I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. Um, my clients are in the advertising sector where I once worked, um, and my sweet spot is building strategy that really builds belonging in the long haul. So that's a little bit about me. We want to start with just a quick overview of, do we want to do this, Jess, well, with the I, panel? I thought, no, we, we do know that there was this incredible panel, and some, you may mm. reference in this conversation some things that came up, our listeners will be hearing it perhaps for the first time, maybe they were at the panel. Um, but let's just clean the slate and maybe start with a pretty bold question. But if we could take as a group a moment to define sexism and then maybe offer how it may have played out in your personal or professional lives that motivated you to speak of the topic. 
So it's interesting. Um, I actually like for this and also for a, a manuscript I wrote a little while back, I was like looking this up because I feel like people talk about these words, but people use them differently. And like, what does it really mean? Um, and apparently in 2019, they had like the first internationally agreed upon definition of sexism um, that came out. And so I can read it. It's, it's kind of long. Um, so it says any act, gesture, visual representation, spoken or written words, practice or behavior based upon the idea that a person or a group of persons is inferior because of their sex, which occurs in the public or private sphere, whether online or offline. So pretty inclusive overall. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, historically has really been thought to be um, affecting mostly women as there's such, you know, um, an imbalance of power um, and those dynamics, you know, in a more um, societal way. Yes, I'm just gonna highlight from that definition, if I may, behavior based on the assumption of inferiority. Behavior based on the assumption of inferiority. Exactly. Oh, I mean, that says it all. And that was the schematologist for our listeners. Sarah, would you like to add your definition or an experience? It is up to you. Sure. Yeah. So for those who aren't as familiar with my story, just to give a quick overview. So I received my initial diagnosis of VWD at the age of 16. And in the nearly 15 years since that time, I haven't been able to find a treatment regimen that I respond to consistently. And my labs also come back with varying results. So it's understandably caused a lot of frustration since that's something that you introduce yourself as or with for somebody like me the fact that I have a hard time even naming that has made it really challenging to kind of interact with the community and all of that and I truly believe that I don't know there's a little sexism playing into that because you're kind of told you don't have a problem it's fine just push it off and that's I believe why it took me so long to actually get that diagnosis so um, yeah, I think Dr. Wayans definition there just really highlights the inequities even in the United States still. And the fact that it's taken, gosh, 2019, that's such a recent definition, I guess that, yeah. Gotcha. So it sounds like you, yeah, right. Here we go, everyone. We're talking about sexism. Um, being dismissed based on not being believed as a behavior that is assumed by one sex that the other sex has an inferiority or inability to know their own body symptoms, communicate directly about it. That's the kind of dismissal we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I think it just shows up everywhere. <laughs> So, um, and yeah. even before I knew like an actual definition of sexism, I think I always kind of associated um, sexism with some menstruation because mm-hmm. I grew up with a mom who always said, oh, in our family, we just have heavy periods. It's fine. And then I received my initial diagnosis and started connecting more and more with the bleeding disorder community. And um, it's kind of crazy how many times we hear the same comment or similar comments from other women about their families too. So um, the fact that women have been made to believe that their families just have heavy periods and that there is no solution. Yeah. Yeah, To me is just sexism. So I don't 
not microaggression, mm-hmm. but I don't know if there's like a term for microsexism. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think even on like a societal level, right? Where like everyone's just like, oh yeah, periods are hard. Like you're gonna be miserable, like miserable for everyone. Like, no, no, like it doesn't. It's like, why? Why we have good medications. We have ways to manage this. Like this doesn't have to be miserable. Why do we just accept like that that is like the norm? Absolutely, yeah. yeah normalizing it. <laughs> Jean, do you want to add? I do. And I'm going to lean on my favorite person who is no longer with us, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because I think mm. she is amazing. And she once said <laughs> that men and women are persons of equal so... dignity. I know. I have, I have my RBG doll too. Christy is currently holding up to the camera her RBG doll. I just want listeners to know the beautiful doll in Christy's hands. Oh, she's the best, and I really mourn her loss. Um, but I love that quote when I think of sexism because it's in some ways so simple. She's just saying that we're persons of equal dignity, and of course, we should be counted equally before the law. Of course, that's not always what happens. Um, and for me, that was kind of a good starting point when I was thinking about it, because I think that same concept of equity and being counted equally um, needs to more fully apply to medicine. Mm. Um, Dr. Ryan and Dr. James did some, have done some really great research, and one of the things in one of their articles that they pointed out was that Nearly, there are nearly twice as many research articles on hemophilia as compared to VWD, and yet VWD is at least 10 times more common than hemophilia. Um, And why is that? Sexism. So I think it's something that we really need to think about. And when I get sort of academic and wonky, I start thinking about how sexism is really protected by patriarchal powers. Um, And I think that's been pretty dramatically demonstrated recently with the uh, unreported sexual assaults in the gymnastics world. Mm. And so I think that kind of code of silence in medicine can be problematic. And it's obviously that's an extreme example, but I think there are other ways which women are told to be silent. Um, So that's sexism to me. Absolutely. And the fact that the funding, right? So you're talking about articles because essentially, yeah, the, the academic research is not being done on women. Um, so yeah, which then impacts everything related to any sort of condition. So we can, we can come back to that. We, I actually, we plan to come back to that, but just to continue on the sexism and bringing it kind of around to what we talk about here on flow, which is menstruation. Let's, let's talk about that, but where do we begin? You know, when we talk about sexism in regards to menstruation specifically, where would each of you begin? Can you tell us where you see this show up in your lives or your work. Um, and Sarah, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so in my life, obviously, I truly believe that sexism has played a part not only in my delayed diagnosis, but also 
in my inability to find a treatment regimen that I respond to consistently. So particularly in rural areas, um, providers may not be equipped either through knowledge, expertise, or even the infrastructure, maybe labs and whatnot. So when a patient presents with bleeding issues or the like, um, so for women like me, this can really result in a delayed or incorrect diagnosis. Um, and then when considering my inability to find a treatment regimen, just think about the lack of research, as you said earlier, in general, that includes women in its samples. And if you layer that with the fact that bleeding disorders are considered rare, adds a complexity. And then you add a layer of pharmaceutical companies and finding a treatment for such a small part of the population. So while that's like an incredibly dark rabbit hole to go down, it's truly no wonder that there are women like me that are struggling with accessing the diagnosis and even finding that appropriate treatment for them. So that's again, kind of how I see sexism showing up no. in currently in my life and leading up to this point. Thank you. Jean? Well, I no longer have periods because I had a hysterectomy. But I think back to when I was diagnosed, and I was diagnosed at 19, which is actually sort of surprising given my age that I was diagnosed then. And because I was a mutation, my mother had normal periods. And so she just had no idea what to do. She was mm -hmm. really I think almost as traumatized as I was by this wild bleeding. But of course, I don't think that's the case for most women who come from a family where Von Willebrands is part of a family history. And Dr. Wyand's work points out that oftentimes women with BWD, more than half of them aren't diagnosed till they're 12, where men, just to point out some statistics, 76% of males, <laughs> are diagnosed two years earlier by age 10. So if you're not diagnosed until you're 12, maybe you don't even know you have it and you're in for a wild ride, or your mother has it and tells you it's totally normal to be bleeding like crazy constantly. And so whichever direction it goes, it's, it's really problematic for young girls trying to figure out how to handle their bleeding during menstruation. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. Do you mind if I ask, what was that like for you growing up? Uh, well, initially, it was really terrifying, honestly, because, I mean, for any, anybody who has VWD and menstruates, it's, it's terrifying at first. You think you're going to die. But I think because I was put on the pill really early, it helped me a lot. Although when I was a child, I almost died twice. So it's a sort of a sidebar to menstruation, but I had two episodes when I was very young where I had major bleeds. And I, I absolutely believe that one of those times when I almost died was, has really marked me very dramatically. I'm, I'm really a fighter. And I think that that experience, which I remember very vividly, really changed my life. Thank you for sharing that with us. 
Dr. Wyan, would you like to add anything from maybe a, a doctor's perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, what is most frustrating is that it seems like this huge societal issue with just talking about periods, right? Mm. So when you ask like, how far back does that go? But it's like, as early as we have written history, people were saying these crazy things about menstruation, right? Like that it was associated with all these evils and like everything is so taboo and nobody talks about it. And I feel like that is like the biggest problem in the beginning is that you have young girls and there's data that shows that like 41% of parents of girls don't talk to their girls about periods. And that's like talking to them at all, much less knowing what is a normal period and like, what should I be concerned about or not concerned about? And so, you know, nobody talks about it, nobody knows. I think even within the medical community, there's a good proportion. Like, I don't remember a time in my medical training and I went to good places where they said like, this is a normal period. And like, you know, outside of this, you really should be working patients up for other things. Like this isn't something that should just happen. Um, and I think there's just a general lack of understanding of like, you know, what that can mean in terms of underlying diagnoses, um, what that can mean in terms of how bad that is on patients' quality of life and other things, you know, other comorbidities. Um, and I, so I don't think it's really identified in so many patients and even the ones that it is identified, I think a lot of times it's dismissed um, or not really appropriately treated, unfortunately. Yeah. So we've talked a little, thank you for that. I obviously completely agree. I wonder how do you see this? Because we've talked about many other conditions related to menstruation, um, such as PCOS, fibroids, endometriosis, bleeding disorders. How do you, and and again, we have talked about this a little bit, how does this impact and sexism is what I'm talking about, not necessarily this. So let me just rephrase. How does sexism impact the diagnosis and treatment of bleeding disorders and PCOS and fibroids and endometriosis um, and other conditions that we've talked about here on the podcast? And you know you've you've kind of answered this question already, but do you have anything to add? And what I'm hearing again and again, and I certainly feel in my own life, is sexism is baked into the fabric of the world as we know it. So it is a little bit challenging to isolate a reason why it exists for extreme condition diagnosis any more or less than just walking down the street as a not man. You know, like it's there, it's baked into the world. And yet something Sarah said at the beginning feels so important for patients dealing with the extreme conditions, the internalized neglect, the internalized, I don't know how to judge if this is too much pain or too much blood because everything I'm told is that I'm just supposed to bear it. What could we as individuals in the medical field or not do to help clarify that our expectations should go out the window, that we need a, like a new, I don't even know, what should we do? Yeah, we really need a paradigm shift, right? In all of society. Does anyone have any idea? I solve it here today on the podcast, is what I'm saying. I'm just okay. But no, but just like, no, Jean, Jean has something to say. Go ahead. So I'm really, I was really maybe even say triggered by the word dismissed when Dr. Ryan was talking. Because the reason that I was diagnosed at 19 was in a strange way because my mother and I were completely dismissed. So I had a non 
bleeding operation, supposedly non-bleeding tympanoplasty. And both of us kept telling the doctor, she bleeds a lot, she bleeds a lot. And they completely blew us off. Like, oh, this is non-bleeding operation. Don't just, no, nothing. And it wasn't until in the operating room when I bled a lot that suddenly it was a problem. And that suddenly is a problem led to me getting a diagnosis at 19 rather than many years later. So in that sense, it was a blessing. But the fact that two women, one of them who saw her child almost die twice, one of them who lived through almost dying are saying, that person bleeds a lot, I bleed a lot. And you know, it just fell on deaf ears. And that's when you are armed with the information, when you are armed with the factual information being believed on a personal level from one person to another, that's a relational issue. And then just to clarify the two things we're solving today on episode 11 of Flow, no big deal, is the relational issue of sexism and dismissal, <laughs> as well as the internalized issue of sexism. And God. no, I feel like Sarah, you might have something to offer there. Well, I was going to say, I mean, or just add to what Jean had said. So I kind of had a similar-ish experience. And so I was maybe about eight and I had my tonsils taken out, which is, I think, bleeding typically associated with that procedure. And obviously my mom knew that she had heavy periods, but I don't think she put two and two together because I was so young. I obviously didn't have my period yet. She never received a diagnosis for von Willebrand's disease, but I had very heavy bleeding associated with that operation. So we did call the doctor several times because I was like bleeding into my throat just nonstop. And they, we were two hours away from that provider because it's rural Montana and they were just saying, you know, sleep it off. It'll be fine. And I mean, things were fine, but they very well could have not been fine. Like Jean's situation. And that was, I mean, at least gosh, eight years before I actually received my first diagnosis. So there were like points along the way where you could kind of question, you know, should I have been diagnosed or should we have looked more into that? So I guess, yeah, I've been in the situation where I was bleeding every other week for months on end and people telling me that that was normal. It's fine. You just bleed heavy. So I think it's taken some time for me to find the right words or when describing my situation to providers, but I think it makes all the difference to not normalize your symptoms, but instead try and describe how it's actually impacting your quality of life. Maybe. I don't know if that will help change that it does paradigm, help, but it does. <laughs> I have a little bit of context because everybody's normal is different. And I think it's just going to take some time yes. as we've seen to kind of work through that and stop normalizing it. So that's just my yes. two cents. <laughs> Thank you. Much. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that my diagnosis came 40 some years ago. Sarah, I'm guessing yours was 20 some years ago. And now my daughter, who's 32, had a major issue two years ago. Like it just doesn't end. So she's 32 and she had two miscarriages. She now has a very mm. beautiful, healthy six month old baby girl. But when she had her first miscarriage uh, in 2019, 
That's only two years ago. Uh, she required a DNC. And the obstetrician told her that she didn't need any clotting factor. She didn't need anything. And she pushed back, trying to advocate. And then the hematologist on call concurred, which is sort of mind-blowing. And so there she is. Her husband was actually out of the country at the time. She's alone in South Carolina. First time she's pregnant, first miscarriage, trying to say, hey, this is dangerous. I can't do this. And she canceled the procedure and then called back to Milwaukee, where she had a hematologist at a major medical center that she trusted. And he, of course, said, you're absolutely right. And he made the calls that needed to be made. And she was able to reschedule the procedure and have a safe DNC three days later. But it's crazy. It was 2019. How is that possible that she was so dismissed, so dismissed? Well, and then your your comment, yeah, it it's awful. And then you think about Black women, Indigenous women, and just the anyone who all of the intersecting identities, right, that we talk about and the barriers that they're up against as well. So uh, your your comment reminded me of just how much we're up against all of the isms, right? Sexism, racism, and just how it perpetuates within society and healthcare in particular. Which brings me to a question that I'm curious, maybe we don't have an answer, maybe, but I wonder, I want to, we're talking, Sarah and Jean, you've given us some like really great examples, but think about like the four walls of a doctor's office and somebody who hasn't received a diagnosis and they're struggling. And we know this is common in all of the conditions, right? Fibroids, endo bleeding disorders, I mean, across the board for the reasons that we've discussed. If I am a patient walking in trying to get a diagnosis, what what can I experience or what have you experienced within those four walls of a doctor's office? And what advice would you give someone who is struggling? I probably dove a little bit into this on my first view. Yes. On flow. Yes. But I always say just to be an advocate because one person truly cannot know all there is about medicine or the impacts of proposed or existing policies and procedures, what have you. So, I mean, I always just tell people, even particularly with BWD, to understand that they are the experts in their own lives. And like, you just, that's, you need to hold that. You need to validate that and you are special too. (laughs) So it's our responsibility to ourselves and to others around us, maybe who just aren't listened to by providers. Maybe they are from marginalized communities. So you might be helping them by being an advocate for yourself. You just don't know. So I intimately know that that journey is hard and exhausting to be an advocate. Sometimes you need to take breaks but there will be somebody hopefully along the way that really hears you and fights with you for that care that you need and the quality that you deserve. So that's yeah. in a nutshell, that's 
kind of my solution, I guess, to people. It's yeah, not easy for sure, but <laughs> no, it's me- not easy. I, no, I just want to piggyback off of something you said quickly in the first episode, and that is do your best to try and find a doctor that will work with you. I remember you saying that. And it isn't easy, especially when you live in a rural area and you're trying to find a specialist. But I think it's still such an important message. And so many people don't know that you have the right to a second opinion. That's something I always talk about because so many people do not realize that. So just wanted to throw that in there. I feel like part of the issue too is that um, people may even be aware that you you know, are entitled to second and third and fourth and fifth opinions. But I think there's also the issue of like, even knowing that you should do that. Right. I think some people go to the doctor yes. and say, this is what's happening yes. to me. And if, if the doctor says like, that's okay, it's fine. You know what I mean? Like that's normal. There's nothing to do about that. I think there are a good proportion of people that just trust that what the doctor is saying is accurate. And like, maybe the doctor is not even asking the right questions, right? Like to get at that it really is a problem. And so then they get that opinion and then they go back and they continue to bleed super heavily and become anemic and need transfusions or or whatever it is. Um, So I feel like it's really unfortunate because we're putting this onus on the patient of knowing like you need to know it's abnormal so that you can hop around to doctor, 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 doctor to find someone who can agree that it's completely abnormal, which is insane, but sadly the situation we're in. Is there any protocol in place on the medical side of things if a patient comes in and expresses that they've been on a journey that's not found a conclusion? Like, is there a protocol for that? Like, oh, this person's... There's not like a protocol. I mean, I think most physicians would say that like, if someone comes in and is like, you know, I've had this problem, I've seen all these people, you know, nobody's been able to figure it out. That like, there's a little bit of onus of like, you need to like, do something and figure out what's going on. Um, but I think there also can be some like stigma around that of like, oh, this patient yep. is, you know, crazy or they're doctor shopping or all yep. these things that are like not accurate. Like we're the ones failing them, but then sometimes that gets, you know, labeled as whatever that then just further compounds the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, that makes me think of something that happened to me. And then I'm happy to talk about sort of four things that I think that uh, women with bleeding disorders might want to hold in their heart as they're moving through the process. So the idea that you should expect to be safe and listened to in a doctor's office is really, really important. And kind of going back to communities that don't always have access to healthcare reminds me in my early 20s, um, I was without health insurance and I needed medical care. And I had a friend who was in medical school and his advisor happened to be a hematologist. And so that hematologist said, oh, I'll see her and I won't charge her. And I was really naive and innocent. So I went to see him and over a course of a few visits, I began to trust him and that trust led to him um, taking immense advantage of me and sexually assaulting me. Um, And I was too terrified to report him. Uh, That was the old gene, the new gene, no problem reporting. I would have been really aggressive if it had happened today, but when you're young, um, I think it's a different story. So I think that 
lack of access has just a cascading negative effect where women feel very um, fragile and will and oftentimes just take whatever help they can get. And whew, yeah, that was hard. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, like everything that acts as a permission slip for anyone listening to kind of own past experience like thank you for sharing that in this environment for our listeners the lack of access you're talking about and the cascading negative effect the fragility even of of that of being in such a situation and there not yet being systems outside of our own constant vigilance to dismantle the fact that things like that can happen how can we stay constantly vigilant and why do we have to stay constantly vigilant it's exhausting well as sarah as you mentioned as an advocate the resting is necessary dr wyan the doctor reaching out to have these conversations that's necessary when i think back about this i feel like it really taught me to speak my truth early on and to expect accountability from my medical team and to trust my gut. And if there's even, I would say to women listening, if there's even a whisper of something that feels off in your gut, you need to hold yourself with the gentlest, most loving care and say, I am listening to my gut and trust it. And then really reaching out to other women because I think other women are a huge source of support. And there are so many organizations that, you know, even if you're in a rural community or you don't have access to healthcare, you probably have access to the internet. And there's just a lot of great resources like this podcast. Thank you for that plug. (laughs) We appreciate it, Jean. But you are right. There are so many great resources out there for for folks and it actually brings us to one of our final questions is solutions. I mean, what, and you've already given a few, right? Listening to yourself, trusting yourself, finding another doctor. Although we wish we lived in a perfect world and perfect society. We don't, but do you have any other tips for our listeners? And Dr. Wyand, why don't I start with you? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is so hard because I think that, um, you know, advocating for yourself, but I think, again, we're putting so much onus on the patient, which is not um, appropriate. I do think that the more of these discussions that are being had, the more this is being talked about, um, you know, further education of medical professionals, um, that this is a big issue, hopefully will, you know, make this easier and put more of the onus where it should be, which is on the medical community. Um, but I think, you know, I'd echo a lot of what they've said of just, you know, advocating for yourself. If you, if it doesn't feel right, like even if someone's saying it's normal, not, you know, accepting that, um, especially if it's, you know, the first person that you've seen, but I think what is difficult, right? So for Sarah, she was in the middle of Montana and it's not as if there's, you know, 25 hematologists to choose from. So I think again, putting the onus on the patient doesn't ultimately work because there are a lot of patients and those are the patients that are at most risk of bad outcomes, right? People who don't have access, who, you know, are, you know, minoritized in so many ways and don't 
you know, can't just fly to some big city and have, you know, three second opinions the same day. So I think the onus really has to be on us as a medical community. Amen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sarah, do you have anything to add? I mean, in addition to advocating, I guess, in rural areas, I would add that it's rare that you would find that provider with the knowledge of a bleeding disorder or the comparable health concerns. So I also recommend going back to the basics of human connection. So getting to know the women and the people around you, uh, because even though they may not have a bleeding disorder specifically, you may encounter women with endo or other diagnoses that have true insight into accessing care. So, I mean, through these kind of connections, I've pers- they've personally helped me to just not feel as isolated in this unique condition in rural and frontier Montana. So again, love- yeah, that organic connection there. <laughs> Look, Sarah, can I ask you a follow-up yeah. question? Because I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but we have actually had experiences together. It was a decade ago. I can't believe it. <laughs> where we were in DC advocating for healthcare. What role do you think people play in in that role in talking to our legislators and in, in, in being involved in the election process and talking to our elected officials. Yeah. Do you do you mind talking about that just for a second? Through the National Youth Leadership Institute that we were a part of and kind of comparable little groups like that, it really gave me some tools to be able to speak to my policymakers, to really anybody who has any sort of play in that policy side of things. And I think that is also as valuable as talking, advocating in the uh, provider's office, because you're actually talking to these people who are controlling access to healthcare, your health insurance, and all of that. So telling them how um, challenging it may be accessing care at a rural level. So I guess, I don't know if that's kind of the road that you were going down, but it it, it was, yes, absolutely. Showing them real world examples of how their policies are impacting you, their constituents. So a lot of people are too stuck in the DC world to actually see how those policies are impacting the folks on the ground. So I think telling your story is crucial. (laughs) Yeah. I just wrote, I just literally wrote patient stories are so important, but I think just to, you know, emphasize that, you know, that your voice matters. You can talk to your elected officials. And if you feel overwhelmed by that, think about reaching out to the National Hemophilia Foundation if you have a bleeding disorder or reaching out to Endo Fund and seeing what they're doing. We just had um, the period movement on and they're advocating for period products. There are endless opportunities to advocate and it feels so empowering, right? It's not a word I always love to use, but it does. It really feels empowering to share your story. So I just wanted to emphasize that kind of another way of of taking action 
and feeling like you're taking control of a situation um, by talking to your elected officials. So thank you so much for sharing that, Sarah. And last but not least, <laughs> Jean, do you have anything else to add for us? There's two things. One is on the physician side. I would really hope that that the sort of, I guess I would call it a code of silence is slowly being broken down. And I really encourage physicians to trust their gut. If something doesn't feel right with a colleague, speak up. And then for patients, I, I just really encourage other patients, once you find a physician that you trust and that you feel really comfortable with, just use that physician for one referral, for the next referral, like great doctors. And I've had many incredible doctors, but they refer to other incredible doctors. And I, it's, I really, I've, I've just had from my late twenties forward, the most loving might be too strong, but certainly the most supportive, caring, amazing uh, experiences with physicians. And it's because one recommended another, recommended another, recommended another, and it, it's changed my life. Love that. Yes, that's great advice. Thank you. Thank you to all three of you. Before we go, I want to first check in to see if any of you feel like there's something that you didn't have the chance to share that you would like to share something we forgot to cover. And that's my co-host, the same thing. Is there something we forgot to cover? As I cuddle RBG. <laughs> Everyone could use an RBG doll to cuddle, to gather strength for the constant vigilance of dismantling sexism. Sexism, man woman, people. Mm, Oof. I know. As we said throughout this episode, it, it feels like this has come up in some way every single episode, right? Like, it is the core problem that we're trying to address. Yeah, when you're talking about women's health, you can't not talk about sexism in the world we live mm -hmm. in, in that mad world. So true. So, so true. I know we could all use some tips about how to approach this mad world situation. No pressure to solve it, but could you hit me with some Christie's tips? Yeah, let's talk about this. So where do we begin? Mm. I mean, I think one of the first steps is learning about sexism, how it shows up, what it looks like, and then calling it out. If you feel like you are in an emergency room or you are with a doctor and they aren't treating you the way you deserve to be treated, report it, write a letter um to the hospital administration and you know that can help be the change um and advocate it sarah and i mentioned you know going to washington dc but advocating with your local elected officials is so 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 important vote voting matters all these things matter so it might feel like a, a small little um step for humanity but it all adds up so the more we do, the better off we will all be. Um, and I wanted to just mention a couple of books. Um, one, I have not, two of them. I'm actually going to mention uh, three books because 
in our You're Not Crazy. Mm. I'm very excited. I, um, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. But my three books are Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis, and Myth in Man-Made Worlds. Mm-hmm. Now, I have not read this yet. It just came out. I'm dying to read it. Um, I haven't had time, uh, but I'm very excited about that one. The other one that has become, oh my gosh, shoot, you'll read this book and like every page you're like, what? What? And it's called Doing Harm by Maya Dusenberry. Mm-hmm. And then the third book that I'm going to recommend is in prelude to our discussion about You're Not Crazy this week is The Doctor's Blackwell. So we can put links to these books in the um, show notes. And my last tip before we move on is to find a doctor, if at all possible, that listens and respects your lived experiences. Period. 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 If I may, in that last tip, it really goes back to trusting yourself and advocating the things we push yes. for your listeners to do every month is find that doctor, not because it might be easy, but because don't don't quit until you find that doctor. They yeah. are out there. Yep. There's doctors who care. There really are. We've had so many of them on this show. And just as yeah. a like experiment, when you talk about calling it out, just to give an example, what do, what would a letter re- written, we don't know the situation someone might be in, but how do you say I have been not not been treated fairly based on my sex is that what the letter should say i have not been fe- um that's a really great question jay rich you don't have to say it like that i think sometimes that's hard for us to say right like i think it's about writing down what your experiences have been and just speaking from your heart this is what i experienced um i was dismissed mm. i had to come back three times or I had to find another doctor that would actually do a test or so I think when um, it's we mentioned this during the episode too. I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, storytelling is very powerful. So if you think about it is in telling your story, it's easier to write those letters and, and it can be very, very powerful. So it doesn't have to be like because I think sometimes people get a little anxious or it can be a little difficult to call it what it is, but writing those letters and speaking from your heart can go a really long way. So reviewing what you've experienced that has been yep. unsettling, where you've been dismissed, just laying it all out yes. and saying this is exactly. not okay. Exactly. Man. I shouldn't have to come back here five times and continue to not be heard, ignored. Yeah. And be in pain. I yes. Oh yes, in the pain, of course. Advocate because the mad world may <laughs> make you think you're crazy, but we're here to remind you that you're not. Come here, baby. What do you think you are? You are not crazy. Crazy or something? Crazy. Ah! 172 years ago, 1849. That's when the first woman became a doctor in America. Elizabeth Blackwell was her name. There's an article in this episode's program notes that details the challenges of attaining such a title in her time, including, quoting from article, One of Elizabeth's greatest hurdles was the class in reproductive anatomy. The professor, James Webster, felt that the topic would be too unrefined for a woman's delicate sensibilities and asked Blackwell to step out of the lecture hall. An impassioned Blackwell disagreed and somehow convinced Webster to let her stay, 
most often remembered as the first American woman to receive an MD degree, Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell then worked tirelessly to secure equality for all members of the medical profession. Many might argue we still have a long way to go, unquote. And uh, yeah, you're not crazy. We definitely still have a long way to go. Yeah. So the Blackwell book. And yeah, no, this article, I can't wait to read it. My mom bought me this book. I think the Blackwell, they're sisters. And I think that they somehow are from like Western New York, which is where I am originally from. And this book was on sale. So I have, again, I haven't read it yet, but if you want more than the great article that Jay Rich has shared, there is also this book on on the sisters. Which we will link to. We will link to. I kept, as writing this, I kept thinking 172 years ago. Is that a long time? Is that a short time? I honestly can't tell at this moment. You know, I think medicine, even in the last 50 years, has come a long way. So when you think of it in the context of where medicine was, it was a long time ago. But we see. if you look at how how far we've come, I guess that's it. The, the how, journey started how, yeah, a long the, time yeah. ago. We're building upon it the journey still. Started. Yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I don't think that's an excuse. I think that's like... Uh, is it still a male profession, male dominated profession? Absolutely. Mm. White male dominated. We need to emphasize Mm. that. So yeah, I think there is certainly so many things we've talked about, right? Mm. The research that's lacking and the bias that continues. Yeah, Yeah. it's crazy. It's crazy. You're not. It's crazy. It's crazy. You're not crazy. The situation is crazy. Absolutely. Well, thanks to Elizabeth Blackwell for starting the journey we are all still on of reminding any male, white male people in the medical profession that women's sensibilities are not too delicate or unrefined to talk about our own friggin' bodies. Mm Mm-hmm. Guess that's it for Flow this month. We'll see you next month in December for Menopause. Yes. Yes. Don't miss it. Subscribe to, review, and share Flow. Referrals from you are the best way to reach new people. Share your story with us. Do you have an experience of extreme cyclical bleeding? We believe sharing these stories will help support an increase in medical research and social acceptance. Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons, yes, Dungeons and Dragons, Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. And thanks to our sponsor, Takeda, for their support of Flow. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media and supported by Takeda. Shout out to Flo's creative director, Amy Board, and Flo's host, Jessica Richmond. That's me and Christy Van Horn. Our next episode will be available December 9th. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs>